Hello, I'm Julie Steinbacher, and I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney. What I do as an attorney is help people answer three questions. The first question is, what happens if you die? How do you make sure that your stuff gets to who you want it to in the simplest, most tax-advantaged manner possible? And the second question is, what happens if you don't die? What happens if you get sick and you're in need of long-term care? And we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about that, how to manage a health care crisis, um, how to get good care, what are the levels of care, and how do we pay for it. And the third question is, what happens if you don't just get sick and need long-term care, but also get dementia or Alzheimer's, and what do we need to do in that situation? So I'm really excited to talk to you today. I want to be able to give you information that you can use um, to be helpful to you um, as you are managing this healthcare crisis. So first we want to start talking about, you know, long-term care. Um, so you might be thinking about um, needing nursing home care or maybe there's a crisis that hit and now you're worried about does somebody need to be in a nursing home or assisted living or in-home care. One of the things that's always surprising to people is that the average cost of long-term care is so much. Um, you know, in Pennsylvania, the average cost of a nursing home is $10,732.83 per month. That's over $128,000 a year. And that's why, you know, you're spending time on this call is so important because we need to think about what are the ways that we can mitigate that? What are other ways that we can help get that paid for? Especially if you're listening and the person that needs care has a spouse or maybe they're going to get better and we don't know if they're going to be able to come back home. So when you think about paying for long-term care, obviously you can pay out of pocket, but given the cost um, of nursing home care, often people don't have uh, enough money to pay for all that long. Um, some people also have long-term care insurance, but if they haven't bought it before being in a crisis, it's not something we could go out and buy at this point in time. For those of you listening that might be younger or just planning ahead, it's something that you'd want to look into, something we talk to all of our clients about at our office. Um, there is also veterans benefits, and so if you're a veteran or the loved one that you're listening for is a veteran, there are veterans benefits available that really help maybe not to pay all of a nursing home bill, but to help for assisted living. Assisted living can be three to $6,000. In Pennsylvania, assisted living and personal care are not equivalent. They're not the same thing. They are two separate licenses. Um, but what we see is a lot of personal care homes in the Williamsport and State College area, not so many assisted living, but often the level of care can be pretty similar uh, between those two, and the costs can also be similar. They really vary um, based on what, what things, what, how much care, and what amenities are offered at those places. There's also Medicare. Medicare is the insurance that we get through the Social Security Administration. And for many of us, we thought that Medicare might pay for nursing home care. Medicare is the insurance that we get. Um, but unfortunately, it was designed at a time when most people either died um, or got better um, and didn't really need this long-term care. And so Medicare is really not designed to pay for long-term care. Depending on the type of program you have, you could get more or less, but generally speaking, we're going to get up to 100 days 
Now, one of the things that's happened here in 2020 with all the things that are going on is that it used to be for some forms of Medicare, we had to have a three-day hospital stay, and now we don't. Um, and so accessing maybe that first 100 days of Medicare has got, gotten slightly easier, but you're not guaranteed 100 days. Um, when somebody goes into a nursing home, they need to have a certain level of skilled care in order to get that. So we think about somebody maybe going to a nursing home for a short rehab. Maybe they fell and broke a hip and they're going to get rehab and then go home. Medicare may pay for all of that or most of that. But if we have something more long-term or some complications that slow down that rehab, that's when we're thinking about, you know, Medicare is really not going to be designed to pay for that. And then there's Medicaid. Medicaid is the insurance that we get through um, federal and state dollars. It is actually the primary source of payment for most nursing home care because, as you can imagine, a lot of people run out of money and they, they get um, to use the Medicaid system. What we'd want to think about um, in this situation is what, what is it that we can do to be able to access that Medicaid system? For me, people that we really want to think about protecting are those who maybe have a spouse. We don't want to use all of our money to pay for one spouse's care and leave the other spouse financially compromised. And one of the things that we do at our office is individually look at people and see what would happen if this person needed to stay long-term, what would be available, what could be protected, and what actions could be taken um, based on loopholes in the law um, that would give more protection. Now, that's going to be individual by person. Um, sometimes I hear people who've been to nursing home admissions and they come back and say, oh, you just get to keep half. Please understand that is an oversimplification. Um, sometimes the spouse really should keep more than half. Not only are we talking about losing assets, we're also, remember, talking about maybe losing some income. So if my spouse is in a nursing home, um, it ends up um, passing away, I'm going to lose the smaller Social Security check. So it's really important um, that we look into this. And what I can tell you is that it's not as simple as just one half or um, up to $125,000. Um, what we first need to understand is what does Medicaid pay for in our state? Medicaid pays for nursing home care. Um, it also pays for some in-home care uh, through what's called a waiver program, the aging waiver it does not pay for personal care or assisted living. So sometimes when we're looking for places, we wonder, should we go to a memory care unit that is an assisted living, or should we go to a dementia unit that's part of a nursing home? And what we have to understand is that there's going to be different payment sources. But what we need to know is that if we're worried about nursing home care or in-home care, um, there are things that we can do to protect assets, even if our loved one's already in a nursing home. The first thing that we do is we look at what's countable. What assets do we have that are countable? Things like bank accounts, savings bonds, stocks, cash, annuities, retirement accounts, motor vehicles. And we figure out what, what all does this person have. And then we look at things that are non-countable, such as one vehicle, maybe a retirement account of this, of this spouse. Um, maybe some irrevocable trust. If people planned ahead and put money away in a trust that's not countable, we'd have to look at the trust to make sure. But it's generally going to be some sort of an irrevocable trust. If the trust is revocable, then it would be countable. 
we're going to think about things like term life insurance. Um, also, a non-countable resident, a, a non-countable resource is our primary residence where we live, the house that we live in. Um, but it's a little short-sighted just to say, oh, I don't have to sell that to pay for my nursing home care, because in the state of Pennsylvania, we have a recovery lien. And what that means is that um, if the state, through Medicaid, helps pay for care and the person passes away, they can come against the estate and recover against it. So, wow, I know that already there's a lot of information that I'm sending to you, um, but what we've talked about so far is the cost of long-term care, ways to pay for it, and focus on um, Medicaid um, and ways that we might be able to get Medicaid. What happens is if, if your loved one, I, I said that, you know, even if somebody's already in a nursing home, um, we, may already, we may be able to protect more assets. We can't do that just simply by giving away because giving away the money like to children um, because what happens is when we apply for medical assistance or Medicaid in our state, they'll say, have you given anything away in the last five years? And if so, they're going to assess a penalty. Um, and so an example of that is let's say you transfer your house that has a fair market value of $100,000. Um, we're going to say, have you done that in the last five years? And if the answer is yes, um, you, um, they are then going to assess a penalty. Now, they do that based on the value of the house and the average cost of nursing home care. So in the example that I'm talking about, the value of the house is $100,000. We already talked about the average cost of nursing home care is $10,732.83. Now, if we divided those, we took $100,000 and we divided it by the average cost of care, the $10,000, we're going to come out with 9.3 months. And that means that they would penalize um, for 9.3 months. But if we worked with you as a family and you had other ways to pay for those 9.3 months, we might decide to transfer the house to protect it and use other money to pay for care. Now, that's not necessarily what we would do in every situation. Sometimes based on people's ages and their incomes, it makes more sense to use an annuity. Um, but that's one of the things, you know, it's so important for me to make sure that you know that there's options and that you should reach out to an elder law attorney to find out what's available, what's exempt, how do we protect a spouse, how do we protect somebody that maybe went into a nursing home. We really think they're going to be able to be discharged at home at some point in time. We want to make sure they still have money to come home to. Um, and so we want to think about those things. Now, one of the questions I always get is, can I just add my child's name to my house to protect my assets, or can I just give everything to my child? Um, it still creates an ineligibility period, whether I give it away to a kid or whether I put it into a trust. But I will tell you that I generally don't like just giving things outright to children because you never know. Um, you never know whether or not um, that child's going to pass away, whether or not they're going to get divorced, whether or not they themselves are going to get sick, maybe in a car accident. Um, and so we do like, if we're going to do any gifting, we do like to use trust so that we make sure that those things are protected. We just never know. Uh, you know, we call it the four Ds, divorce, disability, debt, death. Um, you know, a lot of people say to me, I, you know, I have really good kids. And I always say back, so do I. I have three kids that I love and I think the world of, but life can happen to them. It's not about having good or bad kids. Now, 
I would be remiss if I didn't talk about there are some exemptions to the transfer penalty. Um, if the person that's in a nursing home has a child under the age of 21, we've certainly seen those situations where, unfortunately, maybe somebody has MS or something like that and they're younger and they end up in a nursing home or needing the aging waiver. Um, a child who's blind or has a disability, so if there's a child um, that depends on you and, and they have some sort of a disability, um, there's no five-year look back. There's also an exemption for what's called a caregiver child, and that's a child who provided care that kept a person out of a nursing home for two years. So one of the things when we meet with families is we want to see, okay, we can't just outrightly gift things, or we can't just outrightly gift even to a trust because of the five-year look back, but do we have any of these exceptions? Because there could be people um, that the law says their interest is needs to be protected even more, and we could... Um, we could end up protecting that. So there's exemptions for uh, those protected people that we talked about. Um, we also, there's also a lot of spousal protections. And so I know sometimes um, people will say what well, the maximum community spouse can protect is $128,000. It's actually $128,640,000. Basically what the law does is it says, well, you can keep, each spouse can keep half the assets up to that amount. So if I started out with, you know, $260,000, each gets to keep about the 128. But what if I have less than that? Well, then I only get to keep half um, up to that. So if I had 200,000, each would each get to keep 100,000. If I had more than that, if I had 500,000, um, the spouse that was at home, the community spouse, would get to keep the 128, and the rest would be available for care. But remember, that's just at first blink. What we would do is we'd complete a resource assessment, um, and then we want to look even closer at the, um, the situation. We want to make sure there's irrevocable burial reserves. Um, we want to make sure there's no home improvements, nothing that we want to think about. Um, and and then we may say, okay, based on this spouse's income and their age, we might want to buy what's called a Medicaid-compliant annuity. And what that would do is it would allow the spouse um, to keep some of those assets that should have been spent down on the nursing home. We really, really want to do this because we really want to protect that spouse at home because when the spouse that's in the nursing home passes away, we lose income. Um, and so it's really important um, that we think about this. That's one of the things that we do um, for our clients at our office. Now, I'm talking about a, a married couple, but also you can do a spend down for a single person. And so in that situation, again, we need to count up how many assets are there. Um, we want to think about what are things that we could pay for. You know, prepaying a burial is always a good idea. Um, we also could do planned gifting, like I talked about before with gifting some money and using other money to pay for their penalty period. We also might want to think about, you know, Medicaid-compliant annuities, all of that to help protect those assets and gain eligibility for Medicaid. So important stuff that we're talking about, important information. Um, and unfortunately, on this call, I'm not able to be very specific. And I'm, I know that you might be on listening and wondering, how does this really apply in your situation? So I'm trying to use different examples so maybe you can put yourself in a spot. But what I can tell you is that our office, we do offer consultations. So if you call our law office at 570 
322-2077. And again, that's Steinbacher Goodall and Yurchak. I am Julie Steinbacher, the founder of the firm. And I'm on here today just to give you an awareness of what, you know, what's available. And we're doing this by a teleconference um, because for many, many years at our office, we've put a lot of money into education and doing face-to-face -face seminars. Um, and at this time, it's not something that we're able to do, but we want to make sure that you get good, valuable information. So I have some more topics that I want to go over um, we're, um, before, we, before we end, just to give you some other information. Um, as we move forward, one of the things that you know we're often asked about is, you know, why should I establish a trust or should I establish a trust? And not everybody needs a trust. You know, some attorneys you would go to think everybody does. I think you should use a trust if there's a goal that we can accomplish. So for some people, that's avoiding probate. Um, as we're talking about today, for some people, that's long-term care protection. So not unusual that I meet with somebody and we're pre-planning. Um, we're we're um, looking at a situation and we are um, saying, okay, I want to take this house and put it into this trust. And after five years, that house is protected for nursing home care. We might want to do some controlled gifting. Maybe we're concerned about um, our daughter or our child um, inheriting the money, or maybe we're concerned about an in-law. Um, we also worry about uh, children who have any sort of a disability, who have any sort of a special need. We don't want to give money to people who might have a benefit themselves, such as Medicaid or SSI. And so we want to use a special needs trust um, in order to ensure that they can get an inheritance um, and not have a situation where they lose their own benefits. And there's many types of trusts that are out there. Um, from irrevocable trusts um, to revocable trusts. When people talk about that, they act like there's just two categories. And what I can tell you is really it's kind of a continuum. Some trusts are really, really irrevocable, and some trusts are less irrevocable, um, and some are totally revocable, means that they can be totally changed at any point in time. The type of trust, like for today's call, that we use mostly for nursing homes, I think are a little bit of a blend. They are considered irrevocable trusts. Um, but there's a lot of things that you can still change or or um, have control over. So I've talked a couple times today about putting a house in a trust. So if I had a client and we took their house and we put it into a trust, they could still be their own trustees. That means that they can decide to sell their house. Um, they could decide to change the beneficiaries, although because of realty transfer tax in our state, we'd want them to only be able to change it amongst exempt parties, which is like their children, grandchildren. You know, So if maybe somebody came in and they gave their farm to their child, uh, but maybe five years later they decided, well, they'd really rather it go to their grandson, uh, they are able to make that change. But there's things that can't be changed about it. Um, you know, you can't decide to give it to the mailman, for instance, unless you paid that realty transfer tax. Um, you also, you know, have completed the gift. You can't just say you want it back and you want it out of the trust. It's really there upon your death, and when you pass away, it will pass to the person who is the beneficiary at that point in time. One of the things I hear often about trust is, oh, you shouldn't do that because, 
you know, you have to get an EIN number and you have to do a tax return and you're going to pay more tax. What I can tell you is that for most nursing home trusts, none of that is true. There are a type of trust called a grantor trust, which a grantor trust means that when the IRS looks at it, the grantor retains so much power that they believe that um, the grantor um, is still considered the owner. Um, and so, great thing. So, you know, again, I, I don't want to overwhelm you with details, but I want to kind of, you know, let you know that these things exist out there. I would say to you, I get a lot of questions about trust and people are interested in it. It's something we spend a lot of time with our clients individually deciding, will this work in this situation? Is it a good idea? But the other thing I would say is, you know, the trust may not be the most important document. I actually think the most important document is the power of attorney. And that's a document that says, here's who I want to make decisions for me if I'm not able to. So there's financial powers of attorneys. There's health care powers of attorneys. There's things called living wills, uh, which are a kind of a type of power of attorney, advanced directive, that says whether or not you want to be artificially kept alive. There's mental health powers of attorneys. And I think they are the most important documents because in those documents, one of the things that we would want to do is to make sure who the decision maker is. So for, you know, powers of attorneys are for during our life. Everybody over the age of 18 should have a power of attorney. Um, and what happens with the power of attorney is um, we say, you know, in my situation, I've said, if I'm not able to make my own decisions, I want my husband to be able to make those decisions, both financial and health care, mental health. I also want him to be the person that if, you know, it's not clear what we should do in a situation where, um, you know, maybe I've been hurt or something's happened to me and we don't know if I'm being artificially kept alive. Um, so in those situations, you know, what should we do? Um, so a financial power of attorney, uh, you know, is anything from selling a house to um, depositing a check to updating a beneficiary. Um, and we want to make sure that we have those things in place. Now, sometimes people say to me, oh, I have a power of attorney. Unfortunately, in Pennsylvania, the law changed drastically in about 2015. So we always want to say to people, well, how old is it? Um, also, sometimes we look at powers of attorneys and they don't have the power that we want to have in it to make gifting in a crisis situation, um, to be able to do the things that we need to do if you are in a healthcare crisis. And so um, we always want to look at that. Often people already have healthcare powers of attorneys and often they don't need to be updated. Often they're okay. Um, but a power of attorney is basically a document that says, hey, if I can't make my own decisions, this is who I want to make it. Um, and it's something in a planning situation we want to make sure that we have updated and we have good decision makers. But if you're listening to this call and it's because there's a health care crisis, I would say to you it's one of the most important things to say, if your loved one or yourself are still able to make their own decisions, let's look at those powers of attorneys if they have old ones or if they don't have one. Let's talk about who should be our decision makers and let's appoint them in a document. Um, so that we know who's supposed to be making those decisions and so that they have the full power under the law to be able to make those decisions. 
If we don't have an updated power of attorney or one that allows us to make those decisions, what ends up happening is that we have to go to a court to get a guardianship sometimes. And that can be costly and time-consuming. You know, anytime we um, interact with a court, it's not good or bad, but there's all kinds of rules and procedures that really make sure that people are protected. But those rules and procedures end up taking time and energy, and they end up costing more money. Um, also, with the courts, we have to wait for court dates. You know, our courts are busy, and so um, you know we, we wouldn't want a situation where somebody's in a nursing home and we're waiting for a court for three months to give us a date to get a guardianship. So if we have a good power of attorney, we're ready to go, and we have somebody who can make decisions if that person in the nursing home cannot. So please know, just because somebody has a health care crisis or um, they're in a facility doesn't mean they can't make their own decisions. Um, people could be in a facility and can make their own decisions and out of a facility and not able to. It's really about whether or not you're competent enough to make those decisions. So I've talked a lot about financial powers of attorneys, kind of talked a little bit about health care powers of attorneys, the really documents that help make health care decisions. Um, I alluded to the living will, and, you know, that's a document that says, I don't want to be artificially kept alive. And that document isn't always as helpful as what we'd want it to be. It doesn't always say what we want it to say. It doesn't always answer the question, I guess. Um, but it's really important that we have it in Pennsylvania. And it, I think even more important for having a health care crisis, one of the things that we want to do is kind of is talk to our loved one about, you know, what happens if you get worse? Um, do you want to be artificially kept alive? What are the measures what are the things that we want to do to continue to save your life? Or is there a point whereby it's, it's okay and we've done enough? And so um, a living will, the concept is really important, but I would say sometimes in that situation, the conversation is actually more important than the document itself. Um, and that's something in our office we're happy to assist people with to kind of have those conversations and to think through that. We do spend a good amount of time talking about who should be somebody's agent. You know, I talked to you about the fact that, you know, my husband was my agent, but it's not always the spouse that should be the agent. Maybe the spouse themselves is sick. Um, maybe um, it should be the spouse and a child. Uh, maybe it should be more than one child. And that's so specific to this, to your situation. What I can tell you is you shouldn't appoint the child that lives closest to you just because they live closest to you. You should appoint the child that, that has the ability to get it done. Um, so, you know, for financial decisions, we want a child who's able to make those financial decisions, that they have the time and the energy, but also that they have some level of knowledge um, to be able to do that. Same is true for healthcare decisions. We don't want to appoint, you know, our oldest child who lives in California when our youngest daughter is the one taking us to the appointments. And so we want to talk about your specific situation and what makes the most sense. And, you know, I've, on this phone call, just for brevity, um, I've really talked a lot about children. But, you know, some of you listening may not have children, or you may not have children who are able um, to help out. And you certainly can avoid um, appoint siblings, you can appoint members of your church, your friends, um, and one of the things that we'd be happy to do is help the person that you're appointing understand what is the obligation, what are they saying yes to, which is really important. So <clears throat> reviewing your powers of attorneys with an elder law attorney 
or um, establishing them is a really important decision um, and step that can be taken for people. We also do want to look at, you know, what does our will say? And does it reflect what we want? Or if we don't have a will, um, understanding what intestate law does, um, which basically says where your money goes. And unfortunately in Pennsylvania, um, it has a little bit of an odd result if there's a second marriage, um, and it, it makes it more time-consuming. So we, we want to establish a will, and we want to make sure the will. So the one thing about wills I will tell you is that if we look at a will and it's really old, but it does what we want it to, um, often they don't need to be updated. It's one part of the law that hasn't changed for a very, very long time. So um, we've gotten to talk about this really important topic as far as managing a healthcare crisis. Um, and I know that everybody that's listening to this is at a, at a different point. What I can tell you is that at our office, at Steinbacher Goodall and Yearcheck, um, we are able to um, bring a team of people um, to you that is able to help you answer your questions um, and make sure that um, you're able to get the information that you need. <clears throat> we have a team of attorneys. Um, myself, I'm an attorney. Um, I also have a background in social work. So I used to be a social worker at a, a nursing home. I'm also um, an owner of a personal care home at this point in time. Um, and so have a lot of knowledge about the system. But there's a team of attorneys that work at our office. Um, we also have certified Medicaid planners, and there are people who have worked for me for a long time um, and are really able to understand the Medicaid system and how to best leverage it for you and what would make the most sense for you and your family. We also have a great support staff um, who are knowledgeable about the legal planning, asset protection, benefit plannings, and community resources. One of the things that we pride ourselves on is individualized planning. Um, so today I tried to give you some, you know, uh, scenarios, um, but your individual um, information would be so important. We also have good quality legal documents. Um, so at, at the end of the day, um, we have social workers on staff. We want to deal with the community resources. But we are a law firm, and we want to make sure that you have the best documents possible. And our goal is to really give you peace of mind. Our goal is to inform you about um, what your options are, um, help you make a decision about what makes the most sense for you. So um, if you want to um, find out more information for yourself, you're welcome to call our office at 570-322-2077. Um, and you can schedule an appointment. We do offer free initial consultations. Um, and so you come in and um, we go over your situation. Now let me tell you a little bit about what will happen if you call our office. We are going to ask some questions. We want to make sure, we're going to ask you about eight questions. We want to make sure that you get in with the right person who is going to be able to help you. Um, after that, they are going to call you and kind of gather some information, um, ask you to bring some information with you. We'll send you a list. And all of that is to make sure that we can be as specific as possible in, in your initial consultation, that when we talk about your situation, we can really decide 
what it is that makes sense for you. You know, if we're looking at powers of attorneys, we actually want to look at the documents and make sure they're good um, and, and, you know, make sure they don't need updated or advise you that they do. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, our goal at the end of the day is to give you peace of mind. Um, our goal is to help you in this crisis, um, if you are in a crisis. And I will tell you, we do have appointments available um, that we save just for people in crisis. Because um, we do know um, how difficult it is and how lonely it feels and how difficult it is to not know for sure what the true answers are. Um, and often the healthcare system is so rushed um, that we don't always be able to get the answers um, that we need there. So if you'd like to get started with your planning, um, I'd urge you to call our office again at 570-322-2077. Uh, for a free initial consultation. Also, when you call, uh, we have many books on different topics, such as planning for the second half of life, Alzheimer's, um, and different types of planning. Don't go broke in a nursing home. If you want any supporting information or you want any information to read before your appointment or um, to look at before even making an appointment, you're very welcome to request and ask those things. Um, also, as a source, um, we do have a website, and that is paeldercouncil.com. So PA is in Pennsylvania, elder as an older person, council um, as in your legal counsel. And so it's paeldercouncil, P-A-E-L-D-E-R-C-O-U-N-S-E-L.com. -E 